0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren.
1: Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Welcome to 2016. Come on in. Grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Ian Robertson, our young rockabilly friend, is here on the other side of the glass, looking very much like the ghost of Eddie Cochran. Twisting the knobs and the dials. Uh, Albert Vinzel, the quiet, mysterious one, is here running our HOA. Uh, Is our HOA up and running? We're not sure. No, I'm getting the thumbs down. We're having some internet issues. However, if you want to try, we may get it going later. Uh, You you may just want to stow this information away for uh, next week. Uh, But generally, we run a hangout on air. And If you want to stream the show live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. At Richard, S-Y, because I love you, T at Richard Sarah. Click on the HOA link, which will appear at the top of the feed just around showtime. And you simply click on that HOA link, and you are in the Inner Sanctum, where you'll see me and my new beard, Not not sure if it stays or goes at this point. Uh, uh, At um, Christmas dinner in uh, Brantford, my mother saw it for the first time and said she's 90 years old. So at this point, she's pretty much unfiltered. She says what she means and she means what she says. And she said, when I walked through the door and she saw the hirsute version of her youngest son, she said she was reserving judgment. ...until she had time to think about it. And then finally, she kept giving me these sort of strange glances across the Christmas dinner table... ...and at the end of dinner, she rendered her verdict. And uh, she said, I've decided. She said, I don't like it. (laughs) As I say, uh, she's 90, she can say whatever the hell she wants, and she does. God love her for that. I'm taking her opinion under advisement. Author-scientist Andrew Smart is standing by from Switzerland... To talk about machines, psychedelics, consciousness, the robot apocalypse, the technological singularity, LSD. Wow! How's that for our first show out of the gate for 2016? Uh, Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of fascinating tidbits in the slide carousel up at strangeplanet.ca. Now that's the landing page. And from there... Uh, because, you know, there are a bunch of different projects going on under that banner. So strangeplanet.ca. You go there, and then you go to the radio page for the conspiracy show. And there's the slide carousel up at the top. Uh, And speaking of AI, this week, Google released a research paper chronicling one of its latest forays into artificial intelligence. Researchers at the company programmed an advanced type of chatbot that learns how to respond in conversations based on examples from a training set of dialogue. And the bot doesn't just answer by spitting out canned answers in response to certain words. It can form new answers from new questions. And this means Google's researchers could get a little creative with it, and they certainly did. They asked the bot everything from boring IT questions to the meaning of life. Uh, The responses were alternately impressive, amusing, and unnerving. If you want to find out what the meaning of life is, according to the Google AI bot, you can find that story, again, in the slide carousel up at strangeplanet.ca. Was it last week or the week before we were talking about a Times Magazine correspondent or bureau chief who was contacted by a... um, it was it was it was a, it was a, uh, it was a um, some sort of a chat bot. It was a, it was an AI artificial intelligence sort of masquerading as uh, some sort of a um, marketing agent and asking him all sorts of questions. And he quickly deduced, based upon the sort of the rhythm and the pattern uh, and the even evenness, the sort of the monotone quality of the voice, that it was in fact a robot he was speaking with. And he was able to determine that also by asking it certain questions, like what day is it or something, and it wasn't able to respond, and it would say, I don't understand the question, or we have a bad connection. (laughs) Anyway, then he directly asked, are you a robot? And he called it a she. She denied it. So the next time the phone rings and it's someone asking if you'd like your, your furnace ducts cleaned, you could be speaking with a robot. You never know. Uh, don't forget again to register at strangeplanet.ca it's fast, easy, free and once you're a member there uh, there's lots of free stuff available to you or for you online like uh, there's a vast archive of our past shows there's a past author section a book club section and more and just a reminder seasons 1, 2 and 3 of my television program The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett now available in the US on Amazon and Hulu and of course season 4 Coming soon across Canada, we're still waiting on an air date. Okay, let's settle in. We are about to embark on what promises to be, I think, a pretty remarkable journey over the next three quarters of an hour. Now, here's what Douglas Rushkoff writes about my next guest and his new book. Quote, Andrew Smart deftly shows why it's time for us to think deeply about thinking machines before they begin thinking deeply about us. In his new book, Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness, Andrew Smart weaves together binary numbers, the discovery of LSD, computer programming, and much more to connect the vast but largely forgotten world of psychedelic research with the resurgent field of AI and the attempt to build conscious robots. Andrew Smart is a scientist, engineer, interested in consciousness, brains, and technology. His work traverses the boundaries of neuroscience, philosophy, culture, radical politics, and metaphysics. Previously, he published Autopilot, the art and science of doing nothing. Andrew, welcome aboard the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
2: Good. Good. Thank you. Thanks for for inviting me on.
1: Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. It sounds like we have a a, a fine connection. You're in, uh, is it Bern, Switzerland? Uh, I'm in Basel. Oh, Basel. Oh, uh, I'm Basel, sorry. Uh, Whereabouts? Yeah, Basel, Switzerland. Okay, yeah. terrific. Now, um, you, this is interesting because you uh, listen. Everybody's all you know talking about AI these days, the robotic ap- apocalypse, the the technological singularity. Stephen Hawking is warning that this could be the end of mankind. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, I believe, says 2045, when machines or robots become smarter than humans, it's, you know, big tr- something wicked this way comes, to, cro- to quote uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh-huh. Uh, and then so I, I, I open your book and you actually – you take a uh, rather interesting um, departure point. You start talking about the discovery of LSD right there in Switzerland by Albert Hoffman, or, an organic chemist. Which I thought, wow, where is he going with this? <laughs> First, let's 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 talk a little bit about um, the discovery of LSD and
2: why you began there. Um, sure. Well, I think it's a, I mean, it's a really fascinating um, history, and I think it's um, kind of forgotten in in sort of mainstream discourse, and I would say even within um, neuroscientific circles and. Uh, in science in general it's it's largely been kind of suppressed or um because the the drug is so controversial so you, you there's only it's only recently that um kind of a new generation of researchers has has gone back to the the drug and you know at the time when it was first synthesized it was it was really kind of greeted as a revolution and uh psychiatry and neuroscience um Really thought this was like a, a huge breakthrough um, because bef- before LSD, um, science really had no idea that brain chemistry had anything to do with moods or perception or consciousness or anything. And, and it, when when they realized like, oh, this molecule, you know, radically transforms your <laughs> your conscious experience, then that that actually led to the development of Prozac and other you know antidepressants and the whole the whole. Range of psychiatric drugs were developed, you know, it, directly as as a result of that uh, of the discovery of LSD. So <clears throat> it's it's a really fascinating history, and there was a huge amount of research done um, after the the drug was first um, synthesized. and And the story behind it is really interesting because it was really by accident.
1: Yes, um, as so many great he, discoveries are.
2: Yeah, yeah, and he you know he was trying to develop a respiratory treatment. Um, this is in the early 1940s: yeah, 1943, uh, du- du- you know during, right during the war, which and it's amazing that they were still operating quite normally at that time. and he, yeah, the, the story is he accidentally got some in his system somehow when he was working on he was working with this uh, rye, this fungus that grows on rye um, and synthesizing different variants of, of compounds from, from the source um, and then yeah, one afternoon he, he got. know he started to see colors and got kind of dizzy and and he first thought it was uh because of of chloroform that he was using as a solvent um and but then he he kind of suspected like you know it could have been this this lsd that he had just synthesized and so he came back the next day and tried a self-experiment he just he made some more and he ate it which is you know kind of unheard of (laughs) today in in drug research (laughs) like nobody Makes an, a new thing that nobody's ever tried before, and just eats it. Um, pretty brave, he,
1: <laughs> pretty brave of him.
2: Yeah, but yeah. it was the most and, and minute he, trace he
1: could make because he didn't. He yeah. wanted, a, I guess, kind of a baseline.
2: Well, yeah, he thought he made a, a, you know just 250 micrograms, which he thought wouldn't do anything. Um, but it turns out that's a hu- you know, that's a, a really big dose dose of it. And and he then he had this incredible experience. And, and first he thought he was dying and going insane um, when when. Sort of at the peak of the experience because he had obviously n- nobody had ever experienced something like this before except of course um, you know in in ancient or in you know other other social groups that use uh, psychedelics as part of their religious um, activities. So, but then yeah he uh, but then gradually this this um, insanity feeling or this death feeling um, went away and then he kind of had this you know tremendous euphoria and this kind of breakthrough um for, for several hours where he he felt like he um had this kind of transcendent experience um yeah and so that's kind of the the background uh to that discovery um and so i guess yeah the <clears throat> i i was i started out because i i so there, there's two sort of parallel interests of mine that you know one is is robots and art and artificial intelligence and then on the other side, is, uh, my background is in cognitive science, um, and I've done a lot of work in brain imaging labs and things, and I've always been really interested in philosophy of mind. Um, and so, yeah, one day I just, I kind of, I have been, I had been following this, you know, like you mentioned, the whole AI resurgence and, and all this discussion, and then one day, I, I, and I've had a long interest in philosophy of mind, and then uh, um, one day I just, it, it kind of popped in my head, like, well, what if you know what if a, if we really reach this singularity and you have these super these you know human like and artificial intelligences you know could they have altered states of consciousness and and if if not, why? You know, I thought it opened up really interesting problems. I like guess absolutely, not, not? it does. It yeah. does,
1: and at the same time, really, I, I I get the sense, and you can you can disabuse me uh, after the break if you if you need to. But you're not really sounding the alarm bells in terms of AI the way many others are. You're not necessarily talking about a robot apocalypse quite yet because. Uh, Well, and this sort of harkens back to the LSD studies, which sort of gave us a new understanding of what consciousness is, and then therefore, by extension, what it really means to be a human. So in order for robots to become essentially human or smarter than humans, there are a number of other steps they need to take, and how do we get from there? Well, it might take a lot longer than Ray Kurzweil's 2045 prediction. Anyway, we'll uh, come back and discuss further. Andrew Smart, Beyond Zero and One, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
1: All right, welcome back. Andrew Smart is with us, Beyond Zero and One, Machine Psychedelics, and consciousness. Uh, we are talking... Well, this is a um, going to be a bit of a rambling conversation, but that's a good thing. <laughs> I want to talk about LSD a little bit more and, and ask you whether or not, because this is really central to your your theory, I guess, about whether or not we need to be worried about AI or a robot apocalypse, as it's being called now in certain quarters, and that is whether LSD improves um or increases uh our perception human perception
2: um, i think it's a it's definitely an open empirical question that's actively being uh researched and i think there's there's some really exciting new um studies coming out uh where we can finally kind of peer you know inside the the, the brain while it's on uh, hallucinogenic uh, molecules and and really um, you know see exactly what the changes are in um, you know the 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 brain activity use you know using modern uh, brain imaging techniques and i don't I don't know that anyone has done a, a really serious study on on perception and um, you know whether whether performance on Sort of traditional psychological tasks improves uh, on LSD or what the effects are. Um, it, it's primarily been researched in uh, psychotherapy or in, in therapy situations back in the '60s. there was a huge amount of research on you know, helping people overcome alcoholism. Um, and anxiety and things like that. Yeah, recently, they're using
1: ayahuasca down in, in uh, Central and South America. Very controversial therapy, but they are, there have been some high-profile celebrities who have gone down there, used ayahuasca to, to do just that.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's, um, it's and especially in those, in those cultures where they have um, uh, like, like really a cultural sort of support system for those experiences, you know, to, like, it's kind of, it's a rite of passage or it's a, it's a religious ceremony. So people in those cultures have a cultural context in which, you know, to fit these experiences. Whereas I think for us in the, in the, you know, Western world, we, we definitely don't have any kind of um, myths or, or stories in which to integrate what these, what these drugs do, um, so of course I think the natural thing to do with it is is try to you know help with emotional problems or psychological problems but as as far as like the accuracy or the you know if it if it allows you to see anything uh, better uh without the drug then listen I I don't I'm not you know I'm not sure of that or how that would be demonstrated but I think the you know the subjective part of it is is very important and that's it that's very hard to study of course Scientifically, because it's it's different for everybody, um, but we do we are starting to get evidence and see exactly what these molecules do, um, for example, to the serotonin system um, and how kind of the the brain network that is generating your normal everyday experience, um, you know, pretty much disintegrates <laughs> on on LSD or on, on and. All, all of the hallucinogenics are are very chemically similar. It's just it's just really minor modifications to different um, bonds that make up the, the family of, of these kinds of drugs.
1: Right, and they are the, there was a there was a period. You mentioned the 1960s, and then after that, a lot of these drugs were became prohibited. There was yep. a period of about 40 years when it was absolutely verboten to study uh, these sorts of things. And then I went down to UC, UCLA Medical Center and interviewed Dr. Charles Grobe. Um, who was using magic mushrooms or synthesized uh, magic mushrooms to help ease the end-of-life anxiety with cancer patients Yeah, and was having some absolutely remarkable um, results. And um, it, it, it sort of leads to the whole discussion about whether or not when you talk to people that have used magic mushrooms or LSD, um, whether or not they have a spiritual experience or not, but it almost... Begs, leads into a discussion of whether or not consciousness is a product of the mind or exists outside the mind
2: yeah, and I think you you quickly bump right up into these really you know these ancient philosophical debates uh, that are still ongoing um and despite all of our progress and all of our you know and, and despite this this new AI craze um, we, we, you know the, these things aren 't solved you know there's no definitive uh way to say one way or the other. I mean, of course, I have my own (laughs) ideas and every, you know, a lot of people have that there's a lot, there's a lot of different theories, but I don't think there's a broad consensus about what, even scientifically, about what consciousness is and where it is, um, you know, whether it's inside the brain or outside the brain or, um, you know, there's and there 's a really serious um, study of it now within neuroscience, and it 's finally kind of accepted within neuroscience and psychology to study consciousness and that's that 's a very recent thing as well because before it was kind of a taboo um, topic within within academic research about about the brain and the mind because it was too diffuse and too fuzzy and ill defined and you know people could, wanted to study memory and attention and perception you know these very Uh, easy to define and easy to measure things but I think finally with you know with the help of technology of course we're able now to uh, get you know develop a a very serious um, science of consciousness you know within within neuroscience within like mainstream neuroscience and I think that's very exciting Um, so I think it's it's a very interesting contrast to this um, I guess you would call it hype, you know, from from like you mentioned before, like Google, and when when these um, kind of breakthroughs happen or these these developments, like the chatbot or um, di- di- different things, where people go, "Wow, uh, we're really almost creating artificial intelligence," and it's this, "Wow, it's think, it's really thinking." Um, I, I think when you compare that to what's I think we really still underestimate what's going on in the brain, and that was that was part of the purpose of the book too was really to point out like for every advance we make, it kind of opens up new questions and we realize wow it's still extremely mysterious
1: right and it, to to reduce humanity to a you know a complex computational uh, you know, process that—that's what—that's the sum, that's the be-all and end-all of what our brains are and our minds is—is is really, um, you know, a, a disservice. But let me get back to then the connection, and you've sort of alluded to this, but let's nail it down here: the connection between LSD with machine consciousness.
2: Yeah, and I so I basically what I was looking at was, you know, in within AI, there's there's for sure a uh, like a, a theme that the, the the goal is to create an artificial mind and and it would really be it would it would first match you know humans and it would be indistinguishable from a human mind and then it would quickly you know advance to this what they call a, a superintelligence that would be vastly uh superior to us in in all these different domains and so i i started to to think about what you know well our our human mind is one of the the main things about it is is that we hallucinate and we hallucinate in a lot of different circumstances like with schizophrenia or uh for example if you're uh, above 20,000 feet or w- without uh, oxygen for example like mountaineers and there's all there's all these really interesting um altered states of of the human mind um and so i thought if you know if you really have this artificial mind and it's that that's also a very uh controversial term but then is you know does that mean that it it should be able to do all the things that our minds can do and so i was just it, the idea was to ask this question of well once you have this mind and it's um it's human level to, to me that also means that it should it should be able to have these altered states because that's a fundamental uh, aspect of our minds and then I looked more into the the research on hallucinations and things, and there's even it, it turns out that um, you could consider our our everyday kind of experience as not um, totally different from hallucinating, really. So the the difference is is more in degrees versus um, it's that it's these distinguishable states of i'm hallucinating versus i'm having a normal experience it's the same it's really the same physiology um and the same brain mechanisms that are generating hallucinations and generating what what you would call normal experience um and i think that that aspect of our minds is is you know pretty much ignored in ai and and they i mean they're they're kind of just following um a very I, I, I don't want to say crude, but kind of a, sim, a simplistic, um, under, you know, understanding of what the brain is doing. And then these new algorithms come out, and and the hype kind of becomes, oh, it's doing it just like a brain. And and so part of the point of the book is like, well, we, we still don't really know what the brain is doing. Um, and that's and what we do know, it's quite different from what um, AI is still, is still doing. And yeah, and I think part of the, yeah, like you said, the the purpose of the book was to call into question these um, these timelines that have been proposed that were were just decades away from real artific- a real artificial mind. Uh, and, and, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You,
1: sorry, you you illustrate the the point quite nicely with um, the late great Robin Williams and an appearance he made on Inside the Actor Studio, and I remember this episode. Uh, And he had the host just sort of, (laughs) he just sort of gave up, threw up his hands and said, okay, just take it away. (laughs) Because Robin Williams went on one of his patented sort of stream of consciousness um, escapades the way that uh, his mentor Jonathan Winters used to do. I I, I remember as a kid on The Tonight Show and just being amazed at the connections that they would make in such, in a rapid way. And they would just take something... It was just the art of improv, but you know to the power of ten. But to talk to me about you know why that episode with Robin Williams on Inside the Actor Studio made it into this book and why it was had such a profound effect on you.
2: Well, I think it really fundamentally illustrates kind of the um, the gulf, I guess, between um you know what these what the chatbot is doing, for example, and what a human what a real human can do still. And, and and I don't want to suggest that we'll never get there to making an artificial Robin Williams. Like I, I don't want to say that's impossible based on first principles, because I, I you know I don't think we we know and I don't think we can say at this point. But I I think the the interesting thing was that hit the the way you I think you can get a glimpse of what the human mind is doing because we you know we all we're all capable of things like that. Not not obviously not like you said. We're, we're order, many orders of magnitude less funny than Robin Williams, but we all have these associations and these vague um, intuitions, and we still don't know what what how the brain is accomplishing that. I mean, there's lots of ideas, but um, we still don't know wh- how that kind of communication can happen among you know among a group of people that where you have one person who's kind of guiding all of our attention and our consciousness to these different relationships among things that we never. That maybe we're subconsciously aware of, but then it takes a, a kind of a genius like Robin Williams to connect these things, and then you 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 have these moments of of humor where you are, all these things are connected, and you go, "Oh my gosh, that's that's hilarious." And he can rat, he can just cycle through these things. And partially it's, of course, training that he's you know spent his life uh, performing this way, but partially it's it's just something about the way his brain is built, um, that he can use these vague. Um, weak, you know, very weak connections among things that, that normally don't appear to us, and when they do appear to us, they're very funny, because they resolve a lot of ambiguity, and things. And right now, you know, even these chatbots um, can't, they, you know, can't cope with any kind of of these uh, these types of relationships that, for example, that Robin Williams could connect. Um we just we just don't understand how that's how that's working in the in the brain yet. Right. And we don't and we don't know how to do that with an algorithm either.
1: No, we can't produce Robin Williams with a series of ones and zeros and what's and kind of I, I don't know about ironic, but um you know, we thought initially that Robin Williams took his life because of depression and then we learned from his widow uh, that in fact he had he was battling a debilitating Neurodegenerative disease, which is is actually it's quite common, um, a, a form of dementia. I guess similar to Alzheimer's, but it's called um, LBD, or dementia with Louis. Is it Louis bodies? LBD.
2: So, ah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had read that. Yes. So
1: that he essentially was losing his mind, and there was nothing he could do about it.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a terrifying. You know, I, I think that's a you know everyone that's a terrifying um, thing to have happen if you're. I, I think it's probably one of the most terrifying diseases out there, or these neurodegenerative diseases. So, I it's I, of course, if you're someone who's used to performing or, or thinking in that way, and that starts to disappear, I can imagine it's just it's overwhelming and devastating, you know, to go from, sort of the pinnacle of of human, uh, you know, humor and and improvisation to not to maybe the you know the the outcome of that disease might be not, you know, not being able to tie your shoes or not even, you know what I mean? Uh,
1: yes, yes. Okay. So, But, you know, just being on the cusp of losing one's mind, I mean, it almost was as if, as if he was sort of straddling that, maybe his whole life, which almost fed into his particular genius. Who knows? I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, but we will continue to delve into consciousness, what makes us human, and why we need not necessarily... Sound the alarms regarding artificial intelligence. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
0: Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The
1: Conspiracy Show. Coming up in the next hour, Open Lines, your predictions for 2016. Right now, Andrew Smart stays with us, the author of Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness. And he joins us uh, live from Switzerland tonight, this evening, this morning. And um, this is uh, – I love the way you – your chapters are in in binary code. And uh, one of the chapters starts off with – or it's titled, A Robot Walks Into a Bar – uh, is there a punchline to that
2: joke? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. I just, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, bring up this this relationship between humor and, and AI. Um, right. You know, I, and, and there's for sure been attempts to make uh, funny, <clears throat> funny chatbots or funny. And a, a lot of the, you know, like you said, a lot of the answers that these things give are inadvertently funny. You know, because they're it's almost like speaking to a toddler or something where where or right well you
1: that you, you it beautifully because uh, people may re- recall IBM's Watson uh, it was it was programmed to, to win at jeopardy uh and some of the responses it gave were kind of bizarre uh tell 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 us a little bit about about that do you recall the uh...
2: yeah well you know he for example i you know there was a a, a jeopardy clue um uh, about you know about or about 19th century novelists and uh, and Watson came back with the you know said what is uh, the Pet Up Boys? Oh, it was a question. Uh, yeah, that
1: was about Oliver Twist, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he you know and, and and you you can kind of work out like maybe what you know how that came up. But you you I, I at least I laughed out loud when I heard that. Um and and what's interesting to me is that he. <clears throat> Is this this idea that he's you know he can be really accurate like ninety percent of the time, but then when he's wrong, he's just absurdly wrong, you know. And I, I find that very uh, an interesting difference because when, when we're wrong, um, we're kind of wrong in these sophisticated ways or in these you know in these very uh, ways that you, you can deduce almost what rules we're following to arrive at the wrong answer, and it's ma- and it's plausible. Um, and, and I think we st- we still don't know exactly how the brain um, combines these these things to rule out implausible answers.
1: Because there's a kind of a you mentioned in the book. There's kind of a fuzzy logic that we humans have uh, that if we if the pet shop boys and I'm not sure how Watson arrived at that. I mean the, the clue was Oliver Twist and he came up with pet shop boys. I'm not sure how he arrived at that. Uh, but if that for whatever reason, if pet shop boys were to Come up in our brains, we would eliminate it using this fuzzy logic because we know it's impossible. But an an, an AI can't doesn't have that fuzzy logic, so they're just going to come
2: out with it. Right, and they, and and the other thing a lot of people point out is they don't have yet, of course. Um, our first of all, our our evolutionary history of you know or you know millions of years and of uh, of kind of ge- inherited genetic intelligence or or knowledge that's that we get uh through dna and then also they don't have a life experience yet of growing up in a culture um and of course i think you know ai is taking this seriously and and trying to Grow robots, so to speak, as a, as a child does and and learns, but but they even these very powerful systems like Watson, um, you know, just has no no access to cultural semantics or like what our, our 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 shared sort of cultural meaning about things, and so yeah, these these things that we we somehow automatically have access to this vast amount of of culture shared cultural knowledge. And you know, if if you're a, of a certain age and have grown up in, in a certain country or or certain culture, you know you know inst- you can recall and recognize instantly what the Petch Up Boys are, and you know who Oliver Twist is, and it would it would just never the the relationship between the two is is uh, is not something that occurs to us, but he's you know he's rifling through literally billions of answers. And somehow his algorithms return that this is the most like, this is the likeliest answer in relationship to the question, but I think it reveals that he's still just, or he or it, you know, Watson is just brute force, um, running through all these, all these things, and then measuring kind of the probability that is this, you know, what, what is the m- most probable answer, not what is the most meaningful answer. And I think that's kind of the crucial um, difference still. Right.
1: We cannot be reduced to an algorithm.
2: Yeah. But, okay,
1: so AIs may never be fully human. They may never get sarcasm, like Sheldon Cooper, uh, or irony, uh, but they could still be a threat, no? I mean, they could still be – their computations could be so much faster, and in fact, what may make them so dangerous is the fact that they lack that humanity,
2: yeah, and, and I, um, there, there's a great quote um, uh, by, by an AI researcher who says, you know, AI uh, doesn't love you, it doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it could use for something else. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> oh, jeez, that is sinister. Yeah, and, and I think that's the fundamental um, risk that, that like people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk see is that If you create the, you know, maybe they won't be human-like or they won't be conscious necessarily, but they'll 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 go on this kind of runaway course of um, develop, you know, connecting themselves and developing into things, and and they don't necessarily even have goals of their own, but they're just from the way that they're designed, there might be these unintended consequences um, where they become very very dangerous, maybe even before they would reach anything like human level. Uh, intelligence that, that would be difficult for us to control if we're not very careful in how we design these systems. Um, so that it's, yeah, it, it, I, think, I think the risk is um, maybe not so scary as these, um, you know, that they would become evil and try to kill us. It would be that they would, um, th- there could be unintended consequences of developing these super intelligent systems. Well, um, I mean, it,
1: I suppose if you are, just coldly logical. Uh, you, you could arrive at sort of a Malthusian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few and so forth. And, and us, for us in the West who thrive on uh, individualism and, and so forth, uh, you know, that the rights of the individual are sacrosanct, uh, I can see where that is going to be a problem. I mean, they are now using uh, AI in theaters of war. Now, there is a human overseer at the moment, but at some point, who knows? I mean, that that human element may be removed, and uh, then we have AIs making these value calls or these judgments uh, based on computations and algorithms, and then I think we have a problem.
2: Yeah and I I think that's the the big risk um is that we, exactly if you if you give these systems uh life and death uh decision making power um and, and on, on the other hand you know you you have the situation where a lot of these algorithms um when they're used as parts of systems become it becomes so complicated that there isn't there isn't one person who really understands what's going on um, I, and an example I, I point out in the book is. is the Let me, I'm
1: sorry, I forgive the intrusion, Andrew. Let me yep. just get you to hold on to that example. We'll get okay. to it right after this break. Andrew Smart, okay. Beyond yep. Zero and One, The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Andrew Smart is with us, Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness. Um, we, we, we've talked about uh, the, the potential threat of, of AIs, and it's interesting you, you point out, you know, this was a, um, a very strange year. The last couple of years, really, in terms of the stock market, uh, it, it seems no matter how bad the news gets, the stock market keeps going up, 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 up. Uh, when things are bad, gold should be up, but gold is being hammered uh, uh the precious metals in general uh up is down i mean there is no value in the market it's there's it's really there are no fundamentals and and yet I mean the markets are essentially run by algorithms, artificial intelligence. Talk to me a little bit about that
2: yeah i think it 's interesting and and like you you kind of allude to that there's a huge disconnect between sort of the real life economy and the stock market <laughs> and i think it's because uh it is it is very it's to a larger and larger degree more and more automated um so you have these trades happening in in milliseconds you know like one or two milliseconds that are, that it's even impossible for a human to perceive that uh short of a time span and so these thing, these algorithms are making these decisions in, at that speed um, and it's, you know, it's, it's trillions of dollars that are, are shooting around in the system without really any human oversight. Um, and and it, like I mentioned before, it's far too complex for any one person to be able to look at it and, and tell a story about what's going on. So I think you, ha- you have this – the stock market is becoming kind of uh, reflexive or it, it reacts to itself. Um, because these, you know, these, these algorithms just fight each other. Um, and I, and I point out some research in the book about how they are just, um, they, they go into these circles and hurting behavior that it, that's even more extreme than what human investors do, um, because, you know, they lack kind of, you know, kind of the, the irrationality that is, you know, good actually for humans to balance things out is lacking from these things. Um, and, and I, I talk about one uh, researcher in the book who, who, who likens the behavior of the stock market to, earth, to aftershocks of an earthquake. So something, you know, something will move the market um, that may or may not be related to anything in the external world. And then the algorithms will react, and it'll, it'll look kind of like you know, these aftershocks where it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. But it's, it's not reacting to anything in the world. It's just reacting to itself. <laughs> so it's this kind of a crazy situation. It is a synthetic beast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you
1: worked at Honeywell Aerospace uh, yep. f- for a while, and I'd be—I'm be very curious. You were hired as a cognitive scientist and human factors researcher. What is going on in terms of AI uh, and these, you know, the Boeing
2: seven sevens that we're flying around in? Well, the, I mean, I—I I would hesitate to call the automation on on airplanes AI. Um, It's—it's it, it's certainly you know very smart software. Um, but it's not. We're not yet. The, the automation on airplanes is. – I guess it is making decisions. You know, it's. Um, you can turn on the autopilot, and it will follow uh, your flight path. You know, uh, for you. But you have to still program the flight path <laughs> into the into the flight management system. So, but I, I, there's definitely uh, a huge push toward automated. Um, or, you know a- autonomous flying vehicles so that you would just get in and say something like uh, go to la and and they would just do it uh, and you wouldn't you know what i mean
1: right right uh, and, or the and, or google coming out with a a car that you know you don't have to drive
2: exactly yeah um and and that technology is really i think that that kind of technology is probably closer than a lot of people might think you know that's that's something that that works already uh at least for cars and and for airplanes, for example, you know, with, with really, really crowded airspace, the automation is much better actually at dealing with the separation between other airplanes than humans are. You know, so now we need to make sure there's a, a lot of space between uh, airplanes, but, th- but that's kind of the limiting factor of, of how many airplanes you can cram you know, into an approach. Uh, but if you let computers do that, you, you could safely... Uh, cram a lot more airplanes <laughs> into the same space, which, you know, may or may not be.
1: Yeah, you just want to keep your eyes closed during the approach.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick call. Mitch is in Orangeville and has a question regarding AI. Mitch, are you there? Yeah, how you doing, guys? Very well. Thank you. Happy New Year. Go ahead.
0: You too. Terrific. I, I got the opportunity uh, to meet a gentleman that worked in the Russian military. Uh, his resume is incredibly impressive. impressive. Uh, it was about 15 years ago, but it was talking about topics such as this and research and development of math and algorithms of software design in real time and intellectual control systems. Um, he indicated that they were well further ahead than we possibly have any uh, idea. And uh, this information seems to tie into uh, the popular idea of a Russian scientist named Hadi Bath, And it ties into... Um Harold Kotzbella's work with the black goo uh would you have any knowledge on that andrew
2: i, I don't I'm not familiar with that with those people
1: I've heard of gray goo and refer in, in in terms of nanotechnology. What is black
0: goo well it's Harold uh, Kotzbella that seems to be propagating this concept of um an oil that has been extracted from. The Earth, and I think it was sort of tied into X Files at the end of the series. Um, but I just wondered that there seems to be this sort of, wow, uh, uh, what are you connecting of the dots to um, AI and some sort of either um, oil or or, or or intelligently controlled self automated systems. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, well. Um you've stumped me and I don't know uh, Andrew if you have anything further to add if not we'll uh...
2: well I mean the only thing I could um, think of is for, you know for sure there's a lot of research in, in nanotechnology where you'd have you know like robots that you could inject for example for a medical purpose so you you know they would be mi- you know these micro-engineered particles that that can actually you know have software in them um But, I I mean, I I don't know what kind of substance they would be associated with, or if there's any... Yeah, but uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm not familiar with that.
1: All right, Mitch, thank you for the call. Have a great night. We mentioned Ray Kurzweil earlier, and he's sort of at the forefront of the transhumanist movement, uh, which, I have to be honest, I've I've, I've talked to a number of proponents of transhumanism, and uh, there's something that just does not sit well with me on many levels. Uh, But what about when we were talking about a hybrid. Uh, so you take a human mind, fully human uh, consciousness, and then you begin to merge it with AI that, that would basically ramp up our computational abilities, uh, you know, to an X factor beyond, beyond, beyond. Um, I mean, is that, are we headed in that direction? And is there, are you concerned at all about that?
2: I, I mean I think we are for sure and I, and I, I do talk about in the book um Miguel Nicolelis um at Duke in, in North Carolina um you know he he's really already developed kind of working uh brain machine interfaces or where I, I don't know if you've if you've seen it but he you know his team made a basically a robot arm uh that's controllable uh through implants in a monkey's brain yes yes <laughs> so the, mon- the monkey learned how to with its brain waves you know just control this arm that could reach out and grab a juice or whatever um and i, I think that you know that and it's inter- and i bring him up a lot in the book is because he doesn't believe that the mind is computable or that it runs on computation and yet he's at the forefront of actually uh, making these kind of hybrid brain machine systems so i i, I don't think um I, I think that kind of technology will just continue to progress where we can implant things in the brain as tools and the brain kind of adapts to having this thing in it. Well, <laughs> and, you think and about how to th- use it as a tool. Sure,
1: I think about people with spinal cord injuries, they uh, yeah. have the quadriplegics and and with this type of technology, they mm-hmm. can they can move their legs and their arms again.
2: Yeah. But I I think the other the the dementia or the it, it's one thing for, for to that we can decode um, intentions, you know, move like motor intentions um, and translate those into control signals for a robot. You know, you you, you take the electrical activity that's generated in a certain part of the brain um, and you record that and then you you analyze that data and you interpret whether the intention is to grab or move left or right. And those those kinds of, I would say, simple um, commands are one thing, the 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 idea that you could actually enhance your own, you know, for example, let's say you're trying to remember uh, some historical fact or trying to figure out a math problem, that or or even access one of your own experiences from your life, and and what kind of implant you know or technology we could use to assist you or, or to assist our our brain. Yet, is very. I think that is very far away. Where you 'd have some technology in your brain that would would help your memory and help your right. uh, ability to to do very human but but primarily subjective things is um, right in other I, words I that 's another level
1: <laughs> yes so you would suggest i 'm gathering that we are a quantum leap from resleeving our consciousness and achieving virtual immortality
2: yes I, I think that um, yes I, I I would say that that is. Um, a huge a huge challenge because we while we know we we can more or less um, work out you know when we are intending to grab you know something <laughs> with our arm and we we can map out on the brain or where in the brain that that is more or less happening you know like a uh, an internal thought or like uh an experience is something that is and and even Nicolelis writes about this it's it 's not a computable state of the brain it, uh, in principle, and there's there's a lot of uh, detailed reasons uh, for this, but uh, yeah, I think, like you said, I think that's a that's a huge leap. <laughs>
1: well, I can rest easy now. I'll have a good night's sleep. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you came on, and uh, because there is so much hype out there, even from great minds like Stephen Hawking, and and it seems like every month now uh, we're getting uh, some uh someone you know in higher learning or the halls of academia ringing the the alarm bells about ai and the the the, the singularity and the robot apocalypse um, but uh, you have really i think uh turned down the heat on the burner on that and provided uh, some illumination and i thank you and and congratulations on beyond 0 and 1 it's enlightening but it's also good fun
2: thank you thanks a lot for having me on it was it was a lot of
1: fun Andrew, uh, very quickly, how can people get a hold of the book?
2: Um, I, I just, the best way is to go to ORbooks, O-R-books, as, as one word, .com, uh, and that's the publisher. Um, you know, it's an ind- independent publisher, so any, any support you can give to them, it's, it's great. Amen to that. ORbooks.com?
1: Yep. Excellent. Beyond Zero and One. Andrew Smart, thank you again. I enjoyed this.
2: Thank you. Thank you as well. All right. My
1: website... StrangePlanet.ca. Go visit, poke around, register, become a member fast, easy, free. And uh, as well, say hello on Twitter. Please follow at RichardSarrett, S Y R E T T. And of course, follow the truth.